This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with my fellow senior writer, Ryan Kennedy. Lots to talk about today. First of all, yes. it's just, it's stealing headlines left and right, uh, whether it's the Kachuk cash in rivalry, whether it's goalie fights, and just some good, exciting games. Um, I have a few questions about that, Ryan, but the first one is do you think this is the best rivalry in the NHL? Is it even close right now? It is the best rivalry in the NHL right now. Because of the venom and because of the relevance. The venom's been there pretty much all the time, but for years, one of these teams has always been bad. Mm -hmm. Now you have two teams that are fighting for playoff spots in a wide-open division, and you still have that great venom between two provincial rivals where the cities actually don't like each other. The players take on those personalities of their cities and it's just such a great clash and I think that's what makes it so great is you have the physical play and the fighting but there's something at stake here and that's why you know even with Cassian beating Kachuk in the fight you know Calgary still won that game and so it felt like a you know you know it could still feel like a win if you were a Flames fan but if you were an Oilers fan it still felt like a good game because you got to see Zach Cassian pound Matt Kachuk. Right now, it's looking like what would be a dream scenario is right down the stretch, one of these teams knocks the other one out of a playoff spot. That's your, I, I see, I think the dream scenario is they, they're the they two, three, the first and, yeah, but that's a good consolation scenario. Yes, I think yes. either one is pretty good, mm -hmm. but for Sour Grapes rivalry, I think one knocking the other out of a playoff spot would be chef's kiss mm -hmm. as they say yeah. on Twitter uh, I think that's fair and I do think that this rivalry it sort of checks every box and I do think the most important one is relevance between games you look at you know the Montreal-Boston rivalry especially last decade they were meeting in the playoffs a lot and you know the Battle of Ontario in the early 2000s they met how many years in a row in the playoffs uh, and the original you know the heyday of the Battle of Alberta they were playing meaningful games and right now if you look at let's say Montreal-Boston I don't think that rivalry has the same moxie because Montreal's not good enough right now yeah. whereas Calgary and Edmonton extremely close in the standings that's the most important box to check because the games, there are stakes. And I think when you see the crazy things happening, like, you know, Matt Kachuk throwing big hits, getting cashed and upset, fighting, it's all because there's an emotion that comes with the high stakes. Mm. When the games mean something, emotions tend to run higher. And, of course, both teams have a lot of star power and skill, which just makes the matchup marquee. And, of course, especially on Edmonton's side right now with McDavid Dreisaitl, but also, you know, even though Johnny Gaudreau is having a bad year, it's, they still have, you know, the reigning Norris Trophy winner, Mark Giordano, they have a lot of big-name players, and Kachuk, obviously one of the best young players in the game. And you have the flash of a guy like David Riddick in net. He's doing crazy stuff. His little stick-flip move. That's, that was great. Yeah, and making the Oilers angry. So I think it, it checks, to me, the three main boxes are there's there's no manufactured hate. It's legitimate. Yep. So you have an incident that incites it, like, for example, Matt Kachuk. You have star power and skill, and you have games that mean a lot in the standings. So based on that, I think it, it is the best rivalry, at least in the NHL right now. Yeah, and not only that, but you have Dreisaitl and, and, and Kachuk playing together at the All-Star game, scoring a goal together, not celebrating. You know, they were all saying they were just having fun afterwards. Maybe that was true, and it probably was. But it was fun thinking that they hated each other so much that even scoring a goal was disgusting for them. That was like, that was like a fun subtext of that weekend. Um, you know, speaking of recent rivalries, I think Battle of Alberta has the crown right now. 
It was Vegas San Jose. Ooh, yes. But now San Jose is awful. It's too bad. Yeah, Reeves versus Kane, man. Yeah. And I mean it's it's still not bad because you have like DeBoer going from San Jose to Vegas in coaching. Um, but I mean they're not gonna make in, they're not gonna meet in the playoffs again. So that takes something away from it. Before that, I think it was Pittsburgh, Washington. Mm-hmm. That was a great one for years, uh, especially before Ovechkin had won a cup, because then you always had that subtext of, ah, you know, no matter what happens in the regular season, Washington can't beat Pittsburgh. You know, Crosby's got the rings. Now it's a little more collegial because it's like, ah, we're all champions here. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, but that to, that to me is like the the modern lineage of the great rivalries, and, and Edmonton Calgary is at the top of the heap right now. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I still have my fingers crossed for Florida Battle of Florida becoming something, but we'll have to see a playoff matchup first for yeah. that to happen. Uh, the goalie fight, okay, mm-hmm. Mike Smith versus Cam Talbot. I guess it was sort of staged within the, within the context of the brawl. It was like, okay, we got to do this. Where do you land on goalie fights? And it's an it's a weird question for both of us because I know fighting in general, mm. we're, you know, I don't think either of us is extreme one or the other, but uh, we're on opposite sides. Yeah. Uh, so you are, are generally more pro fighting than the average guy these days. Yes. So where do you land on goalie fighting? Do you like them? Love them. <laughs> yes, because, I mean, it's just a funny spectacle, right? They got uh-huh. so much gear on. They're not used to fighting. And I, for any fights, I don't try to intellectually justify it. I just like watching them. They're fun because it's not me getting punched in the face. Um, And when it comes to goalies, I mean, we've seen some pretty good goalie fights in history. So there there is the chance of it being a really good actual tilt. This one was just kind of fine. (laughs) But it's the spectacle, and it's also the anticipation of will it happen, will it not happen, because you have that sort of crossing the Rubicon that one goalie has to do where it's like, you cross center ice, it's automatic It's automatic penalty. So. And that skate, that skate down the ice, like, your heart's got to be beating it. Yeah, it's like, are we doing this? Yeah, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So there's that extra anticipation of, are they actually going to go? And then when it happens, it's like, what's going to happen? Because... I mean, other than like Ron Hextall back in the day, we didn't know how any of these guys actually fought. Mm-hmm. If and they'd like be Felix good or Potfan, or Potfan gave him a surprisingly good run. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, usually with both combatants, you have no idea what's going to happen. At most, you might know how one will do. But that, that to me, is what makes them extra fun. Yeah, and I, I admit I'm a total hypocrite when it comes to a goalie <laughs> fight. Uh, I'm generally anti-fighting. Again, I'm not vehemently anti-fighting not as far as let's say Ken would be but I'm I'm in general not a huge fan of just you know a sport where like random fist fights are part of the, the game you know but um, when a goalie fight happens it's kind of like my reaction is the same as my reaction to a few years ago that like viral video of the dog riding the skateboard mm. I'm like you gotta, you gotta see this yeah. like I just can't help it like there's something ex- something just comes out of me and I just need yeah. to see it I need to call anyone who's in the close vicinity to see it because it's so rare and I'll be the first to admit, you know, you can tear me apart in the comments. Oh, you don't like fighting. Oh, when goalies are fighting. Oh, now you like it. Yes, that's right. I'm a hypocrite. The only thing better than a goalie goalie fight was when Ray Emery fought Andrew Peters. When it was goalie goon fight, that like, will that ever happen again? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah, that was the best. I mean, Ray Emery, he loved fighting. He did. So we we always knew how Ray Emery would do in a fight. Um, But yeah, goalie goon fight. That was next level. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, and just looking at the Flames and Oilers as a whole, uh, like I said, you know, the best thing for the rivalry to really get to the next level, I think, is for them to meet in the playoff series, which they haven't for a long time. 
do you think both these teams are going to make the playoffs? I, I think I expect we're going to see one of these two teams, but not both, in the playoffs. Originally, that's how I saw it, but then when I look at the standings now, and I know the Pacific is just like super tight and super mediocre, but it feels like there's enough separation now. And if Calgary starts playing a little bit better, because they still have a minus goal differential, which is bizarre. They're ahead of Arizona in the standings, even though Arizona is like plus four and Calgary is like minus 12 or something. Um, I expect Calgary to get a little bit better down the stretch. And I just don't see Chicago, for example, having enough steam to go all the way. So I think by... The fact that the West is really imbalanced right now, and and really kind of mediocre in general, to be honest, with the exception of the St. Louis Blues. It's been strange. Yeah, and I mean, Vancouver, you got to tip your hat to the Canucks and how well they've done, but it feels like right now I would I would pencil in both Edmonton and Calgary, even if one is a wild card team. That's fair, and it's funny. You might have just convinced me with your argument about Calgary because I, I do really like what we're seeing from the Oilers in particular. Uh, and whether, you know, you can't put all of it on Kyler Yamamoto, but there is a strong correlation uh, from his arrival and the team just really getting to a new level. And mm-hmm. uh, he's really balanced out the top two lines, and the Oilers have been searching for more scoring depth, and he's got 10 points in 11 games. Uh, and I do think they look like a different team since he's arrived. I'm becoming a believer in them. Uh, and I do think that Ken Holland, he's already implied based on where they are in the standings, he might be a buyer at the trade deadline. And as we're getting closer, it looks like they are going to be buyers, so they might add another piece. The Flames, uh, I've been worried ever since Jeff Ward came on board that they, their offense, it didn't it didn't get back to normal after they were tied for second in the league in goals last year. They haven't had that spike. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it is mediocre. I don't think you have to be an elite team to get in in the West right now. And I also think the Flames, I think they understand, given the expectations set last year's first seed in the West, they have to be buyers. I think no matter what, if they're anywhere mm-hmm. close, Bradshaw Living has to be a buyer. So it's funny. I was prepared to explain how I think Calgary's going to miss, and you changed my mind. So yeah. I'm going to say uh, I think they're both going to get in. That, and if you ever want proof that this is live, like we're live right now. I was planning to just go against the Flames, and now I've changed my mind. to be flexible. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, over the weekend, uh, the game was Friday night. Stephen and I were there working on actually a, a story interviewing this man, Alex Ovechkin. Uh, he scores two goals, including an empty netter to pass Mark Messe for number eight all time. And everyone's talking about his pursuit of the goals record. He still has a long way to go to get to 894, Wayne Gretzky. Um, so I want to know, what do you think Ovechkin's finishing number will be? He's 34 years old right now. He's at 695 goals. 895 would be enough for the, all, for the all-time record. Uh Give me a number that you think he will finish at for his career. Okay, so I've done some tremendous calculations on this. Me too. I am a math expert, as we all know. 815. And here is how it breaks down. Not specifically, but in his second last season in the NHL, Alex Ovechkin is chasing Gordy Howe's 801 goals. I say he gets like 802 on the last day of the season. Like he comes in with 800, scores two, maybe once mm-hmm. an empty netter, passes Gordy Howe, says to himself, all right, let's, let's, let's keep going. But the next year, he's just kind of gassed. He's done. He gets 14 more. You know, maybe he finishes with kind of like 45 points, 50 points, and then he's like, okay, no, I'm, I'm done. Okay. Gretzky's just a little too far. 
my body's breaking down. Maybe he's had a couple of small injuries by that point. Um, he finishes second all time in scoring with 850. Okay, I like the way you parsed it out because I did the same. I also created an entire fake storyline. Nice. Okay, um, and it's interesting because so when we met with Alex last week, and you'll see in an up, the next issue of the Hockey News, there'll be the full interview. But he did remind me. He said, "I have a long way to go still," and I was like, "It's still 200 <laughs> goals away." Yeah. But because he's passing so many names right now, it feels like he's going to catch Gretzky soon. But it's once he passes a few more names, there's going to be a long gap. There's a goal. Right, especially if you get if you pass Howe, then you, you know Howe is still 93 goals behind Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Um, but he did point out a few things. You know, we were talking about his diet and, and his durability, uh, and I was talking to some other players, like some other goal scoring legends, recently about you know what makes Alex great. And Mike Gartner pointed out that his durability is one of the most underrated things about him, uh, and I think that factors into the projection. And even Alex said, you know, he never gets sick, uh, and he keeps his body. He said he feels he doesn't feel right if he's if he's thinner than his regular weight or bigger. So he he doesn't like to diet. He tries to keep himself always exactly the same and, and he manages to do a good job of that his physical dimensions don't change much year to year and he also said just his, his genes his athletic parents he's blessed with this an athletic build and a naturally yep. durable build so to me those all work in his favor for his durability so I'm assuming he's going to be playing you know other than his usual skipping the all-star game I think he's going to be even if we say he starts to miss more games okay so I have him playing six more years okay so that would be age 40 46 years from now but I mean six years starting next year so gotcha. he'd be 41 by the time he's done and I think he's shown no signs of decline, so I think he could have another season next year where he's close to 50 goals again. Uh-huh. He's still shooting puck as much as ever. He's yeah. playing even more minutes, and power play minutes are up this year, leading the league by a mile. So I have him over his final six seasons. He scores 50 one more time. Mm-hmm. Then he has two 40-goal seasons. Yep. Then he has two 30-goal seasons. Uh, and then, oh, sorry, no, he has one 30-goal season. No, uh, I can't read my own writing right now. So let's see, 50, 40, 30, 30, 20. Okay, let's see. Uh, because I did the math, 50, 40, 40, 30, 20. 30, 30, 20. That gets you 260. But, I, but the math I did had him scoring exactly 200 more goals oh, okay. and finishing at 895, which is one goal, beating Gretzky by one goal if he Ooh. scores 200 goals. But then I think if he gets there, that 900 is too close. So it's he a, maybe it's he comes a cute back. Number. And so I have him finishing at 910. I can't believe it. But if you look at the durability, the fact that at 34, he's showing no signs of slowing down. He's. Pursuing the Rocket Richard yet again might win it for a ninth time, and to me, we can't start about we can't start talking about the end until the guy shows any signs of decline. He's still mm. scoring, you know, he's not at his 65 goal heyday, but for the most part, he's still scoring like a prime year athlete, which is which He'll is great. He'll get 50 this year. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see, but I, I think 910. I think he's going to do it. Okay. I really do, just because he's so durable. But we'll see. Famous last uh, words. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that I've jinxed him as soon as I said that. So I, but although when when we were talking, I knocked on the table. There oh, that's was wood. good. I physically knocked on the yes. table. Uh, before we get to our next topic, just a reminder, we're going to be taking some live questions, so you can fire them our way on Twitter, Facebook, however you want. Uh, let's talk about the San Jose Sharks. And this is an injury last week that I think it, it hurt everybody because everyone loves Thomas Herdel. Everyone True. loves his joy, his passion for the game. He's, you know... All-Star Weekend, he seemed to be having the most fun out of everyone. He had a ball. He's an easy guy to root for. He yes. Always has been, right back to his you know four-goal game between the legs. Uh, so seeing him tear his ACL and MCL season over, uh, pretty crushing for everyone, I think, especially for the Sharks. And they find themselves in a very tough spot right now, um, especially because the pick that went to Ottawa as part of the Eric Carlson trade was not lottery protected. So the Sharks could be in contention for the lottery. They're not getting that pick. Ottawa conceivably 
could they could depending on how the balls pop they could have the first and second pick in the draft it's not wild. inconceivable it could yeah. happen or you can look at it a different way the senators have you know double the odds at at lafreniere for yes. example right so if because it's two teams worth of balls lottery balls in in the the ping pong jar uh, but the Sharks are in a tough spot. They don't have the natural setup to enter a scorched earth rebuild because they don't have that first round pick to build around. Uh, but in their last five drafts, they've only picked in the first round, I believe, three times or two times in their past three. And, and then one of the picks was Josh Norris. They traded him away. Yep. Uh, so what do you do if you're the Sharks right now and you're Doug Wilson? Do you push forward? Uh, it seems like this year is a write-off no matter what. But do you think this team can be competitive again? Or is it time to seriously consider a rebuild? I think it's seriously time to consider a rebuild. The The problem is it's going to be a graduated rebuild. So here's my my little cocktail napkin plan. This deadline, you trade Brendan Dillon, you trade Melker Carlson, you get what you can for them. Probably second rounders, third rounders, you know, maybe an okay prospect, what you will. Next year, you bring back Joe Thornton for one more season just so the fans have something to latch on to because you're going to suck. So at least Joe's there. It's fun. You bring up Ryan Merkley while you still have all these veteran defensemen and Joe Thornton who can help him make the transition to pro-life because he is your most dynamic prospect. So you get Ryan Merkley in a good headspace in the NHL. You see what the future is all about. And hopefully you suffer in the standings enough that you get a shot at the number one pick overall, which maybe Atu Rati, fantastic Finnish center, could be Owen Power, great big defenseman in the USHL, could be Chaz Lucius, incredible goal scorer in the NTDP. So there's options that we're already thinking about. What you're saying is whoever goes number one has an amazing name. No matter what. True. Out of, out of those three. That's a good point. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Um, so, I mean, that's that's basically what you do is, like, you're going to suck this year. You're going to suck next year. Um, you're going to suck the year after that. Because you look at the contracts they have, no one's taking Martin Jones off your hand. No one's taking Eric Carlson off your hand based on the length of that contract. You know, Brent Burns, maybe there would be some interest in the short term, but nobody's going to want that deal five years from now. Mm-hmm. Same with Mark Edward Vlasic. So you've basically made your bed. And then and then you have guys like Logan Couture and Evander Kane who are in their primes or just past it, depending how you look at it analytically. They're very good players. You might as well have that connective tissue. But, I mean, the Sharks, they're just going to have to be in a world of pain for a couple of years. And they're, they're going to be into Detroit... LA Ottawa territory very soon. It's not something this franchise is used to. They've mm-hmm. been remarkably good for a very long time and that credit goes to GM Doug Wilson. Mm-hmm. But the fall is coming. Yeah, I think you're right and it, the good news is when you go a decade and a half and you miss the playoffs once, uh you have leash. And yeah. so I do think that Doug Wilson, I think this fan base should and ownership should be willing to accept a rebuild and not blame Doug Wilson for, for quote-unquote screwing this up. This team got to the Stanley Cup final in 2016. Uh, 
I think sometimes just eventually player your core ages out and you get some bad injuries, your goaltending implodes, whatever the reasons may be. It doesn't work out. But I think that Wilson, he's earned leash. He's been so successful for so long. Um, but I don't see an easy way out of this. Uh, in our Future Watch edition, you know, our next one's coming soon. But last year's, the Sharks farm system ranked 30th out of 31 teams. Uh, I don't think it's going to get any higher this year. It might even be 31st because they didn't pick in the first round last year. They haven't gained anything in terms of prospect capital. Uh, so they're still at the bottom, and that's the product of being so good for so long. Yep. So, of course, we need to see them get back into the first round. Can they do it this year? I don't think so. Unless you can find a sacrificial lamb, it's going to be tough to do because, like you said, Ryan, a lot of their their best players are you know guys you don't want to lose, like your Thomas Harrell or your Evander Kane, yep. or guys that are getting too old to be easily movable contracts like Vlasic, uh, or guys that just don't have enough value, like a Brendan Dillon's not going to fetch you a first-rounder. The one name that I think could fit into that middle tier if Packers was something else Maybe a Kevin LeBanc could be your sacrificial lamb. Could you get a first rounder for LeBanc and Brendan Dillon put together? Uh, that's a, but that's a high price to pay to get into the first round. I think you want to this year. It's a deep draft class, and I just yeah. think you need to, you know, you need to start over. So just getting back in the first round this year just will get the clock started a bit sooner rather than having to wait another year and sort of watch this team rot, which I do worry it's going to do. Yeah. The thing with LeBanc is that his contract is so friendly and he's up for RFA yeah, once RFA. again that and and he's young enough that we haven't seen the best of Kevin LeBanc yet so. but he's not he's not as young I, I feel like he I think he's mid 20s now I don't think he's he didn't break into the league as a super young guy right. I feel like Steven's looking it up he's doing something on his phone yes. right now uh so and the fact that he's an RFA it's a blank slate and yes he had that extremely team friendly deal uh, but now, oh, he's, he's 24. 24. I thought it was 25. Wait, I'm counting. 42. Wait, wait but Steven's yeah. got his thumb curled in. So, like, are you counting that as a number? Yeah. Five? 24 and a half. Okay. 24. Just 24. Then, why, then why, did, why didn't you use five fingers for the first number? You did four on one hand and two on the other? 24. Why don't you go like that? Five. When's his birthday? Five and one. No? No? No good? What? You don't I use. Don't you don't use the one. thumb to count? He's use not it. six. <laughs> Why not, though? It counts as one of the numbers, is it not? Anyway, we know that Kevin LeBanc You're is mid-20s. Not a hand dryer, Matt. Okay, fine, fine. I'm just saying, you're counting with your hands. Why don't you count the thumb? Uh, but LeBanc, so again, he's not like he's 20 years old. I think right. we're getting close to knowing what he's going to be. Yeah. Uh, and team-friendly this year, we don't know what the contract's going to be for the next deal anyway, so right. it's a blank slate. I think that's the only guy that's in that, roughly that in that range. tier you could move. But even so, it's not like he's having a great year. I don't even know if that would be enough to fetch a first-round pick. True. Hard to say. But either way, I, I do think that the Sharks are, unfortunately, lined up for some pain right yep. now. They're just, they're just at the start of a descent. Uh, another team that is enduring a lot of pain is the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, last week, we had the guy known as Dwayne Caller on 550, the radio yep. station in Buffalo. Just goes nuts, the ripping. The pain of Dwayne. The pain of Dwayne. He goes viral. He's ripping Sabres ownership. He's uh, singling out Terry Pagula for his lack of accountability for hiding in Florida. He cites the example he cited was the alumni event where the Sabres were wearing knockoff, like which is pretty embarrassing. It really is knockoff jerseys. Yeah. Uh, with that were like clearly thrown together and sewn together at the last minute, and just how it represents, I guess, what what Dwayne perceives as a lack of caring mm -hmm. uh, by Pagula. So. Looking at it from a big picture perspective, the Sabres are 10 points out of a playoff spot. It's going sideways yet again. This narrative keeps repeating itself where it seems like this is the year they're finally going to turn it around, and they don't. And it looks like right now, this year, I, th I think it's a lost cause. Yeah. We've seen stranger things happen, but I do think the Sabres are going to miss the playoffs. So 
It's sort of a two-part question for us to address. Do they need to blow it up again? And who should take the fall? Is it ownership or does Terry Pagula still have an out in terms of laying blame at the feet of Jason Botterill, GM, or Coach Ralph Kruger, or someone else? Yeah, I, I don't think it's time to blow it up because I don't know how much longer you can blow it up. And I feel like they, they still have many of the elements necessary. Do they have an elite number one center? Yes, they do, in Jack Eichel. Does he have guys to play with? Yes. Victor Olsson, unfortunately, got hurt, but he was great before that. Sam Reinhardt has, has been with Eichel for a while now. That seems to work. Do they have a defenseman of the future? Yes. Rasmus Dahlin, he's already very good. He's only going to get better. Do they have a goalie of the future? Yes, Uka Pekaluokanen, still on his way up. They have a goalie of the present in Carter Hutton, who's fine. He's not fantastic. But I, w- I definitely wouldn't touch Kruger because I'm a firm believer that you need to give a coach at least a couple of years to implement his culture, his structure, his systems. Kruger seems to get along very well with Eichel, which is crucial. Bodrill, maybe. The thing I will say in his defense it's not his fault that Jeff Skinner went from 40 goals to 11. Jeff Skinner's kind of get he's he's into that territory now where he's coming he's becoming like the Craig Anderson of skaters and where Kovale- he's like good year Kovale- bad year. Although you or could Kovale- say you could say that pattern was a known thing as yeah. of last year it even was. Yeah. So that that could be blamed for Bottle knowing that, that is Skinner's career pattern. Right. Unless he was just looking way ahead in the future. Yeah. It was like next year Skinner's getting 50. But that's obviously been a huge you know, loss for them, you know, that, that loss of productivity. Casey Middlestat hasn't worked out yet. Will he ever? I mean, he's still super young. I think there's time. Is it in Buffalo? I don't know. Maybe that's something you pursue and say maybe Middlestat needs a change of venue and you get something, you know, commensurate in return that would help you. So is Botterill the one to, to fix the mess? I, I, would, I would give him another season mm-hmm. but if, if anybody was going to take the fall right now it would be Botterill. That's fair and I do think that that for if you're Pagula you do have that shield right now because I yeah. do think there are certain things that you can legitimately lay at the feet of Botterill. Uh So I do think right now not to say that Pagula doesn't deserve a ton of blame from Dwayne but I think there are some problems and I was a big proponent of, of hiring Botterill right. uh, and it's still early in his tenure but I do think you can at least point to some mistakes that have happened. Sure. Yeah, yeah no problem. Uh, before we get to the next topic I love this comment uh, just from someone called Strong. Has anyone ever pointed out how much the guy on the left so, so I guess it's Strong's left which is you Ryan sounds like John Mulaney and he really does. Interesting. He totally does. I love John Mulaney. He, so, and I think he sounds like Archer, in. the guy who does Archer's voice as well. Yes, I think even more, but I totally John hear the John Mulaney. I will never be able to unhear that. Someone once pointed out that Ken sounds like Steve Carell. I totally hear that as well. Ooh, I'm so going to think about that one. Now people have to think of one for me, and, and we're, we're good to go. There you go. <laughs> so uh, next topic is, is the rookie scoring race, and just the rookie race, not just scoring, really. It's mm-hmm. called the trophy race. For a long time, and it's funny, this seems to happen every year. A couple years back, people were anointing Clayton Keller, the Calder winner in the first month. Then it was Brock Bester. Matt Barzell ends up winning. And this year, it's been the Kale McCarr show. He was on the cover of our recent magazine, declaring him maybe the best defenseman in the league, not just rookie defenseman. Pretty bold claim. Mm -hmm. But he's been that good. All of a sudden now, rookie scoring race, 
the leader is Quinn Hughes. He has played more games, but I think it does show, and correct me if, if you don't agree, that the call of the race is not over, especially with the way Ilya Samsonov is playing in Washington's crease. Do you think it's still Makar, or is this wide open again? No, I think it's open. And it's funny because, I mean, it's a good question about did people label Makar the caller winner too soon. It, it's tricky because, you know, we, we all make midseason predictions or like first quarter predictions or what have you. And with the Calder, it's, you know, it, it's tough because sometimes a kid gets off to an amazing start and it just feels like they're locked in. But, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And different players have different impacts at different times. If you look at Quinn Hughes versus Cam McCarr, and it's so great because it's a perfect comparison of two defensemen, uh, both of whom played NCAA both of whom are not traditionally big, but are the modern era kind of defensemen who are great skaters, super smart, excellent with the puck. So you're, it's apples to apples. And I mean, they, they even both play in the West, just to narrow it down even further. Hughes is better Corsi right now. Not by a lot, but enough. He's playing more minutes, average ice time per game, 21-36 versus 20-40 for Kamlikar. And he's got more points, 39 to 37. As you said, you know, the more games played. But uh, for me, when you're looking at the Calder race, I mean, right now, if you voted today, you would have to go with Quinn Hughes because they play, you know, about the same level of competition, like quality of competition. Quinn Hughes might even be playing a little bit harder uh, in terms of the, the guys he's facing night after night. And, I mean, Sam Sonoff is another fantastic candidate so I think it's a really great race and it really speaks to just how hard a rookie season is in the NHL and how many different things can happen I mean Victor Olofsson was probably a top three candidate a couple of months ago now you have to ask yourself where well where does he fit in because he's been hurt he's going to miss a ton of games once the season ends you know, will his points per game factor in versus the raw numbers? It's kind of the debate we had to have when Connor McDavid was a rookie and he mm-hmm. missed so much time during injury. I would say based on how well McCarr, Hughes, and even Samsonov are playing right now that it might be a moot point for Olofsson. He might just not stack up. But, you know, these things are uh, fungible. And, uh, you know, you got Dominic Kubalik as well. Coming right. strong on Chicago. And Nick Suzuki in Montreal might Nick be the Suzuki hottest rookie ball right well now. as well, yeah. Very fair points, um, and we, you know, we did PHW, PHWA. We did a midseason vote for the Calder, and end of year we picked five guys. Midseason we picked three, and I did still have McCarr number one because I do think, I think the I fact he's too. played fewer games it does it is significant. The fact that he's so close to, to Hughes and points and he's played far fewer games. Um, to me, I, I'm starting to wonder if there's a scenario in which they end up splitting votes because, like you said, they're so similar. Mm. Uh, they're they're both neither guy is playing any penalty killing time. They are two of the more sh- most sheltered defensemen in the entire league in terms of their zone starts. So there's 168 defensemen have played at least 500 minutes five on five, and in offensive zone starts percentage, McCarr's second and Hughes is sixth. Wow! So they're both equally sheltered, uh, and they're just so similar. I feel like they could both get a lot of first place votes, and I, I wonder if that could kind of split them and then leave the door open for Samsonov to steal it. I don't know if that's the case, but mm. if Samsonov is able to rest the starting job from Holpe for the rest of the season. If he can finish with 45 starts, something like that, I don't. Right. I have to look at the math if it's even possible. 
if he's at if he's in the Jordan Bennington range of last year, that wouldn't be enough. Yeah. But if he has a starter's work workload, if he if he has more than half the games started for the Capitals by the end of the season, and he has top five numbers in the league among all goalies, I think Samson. I mean, I'll put it this way. If Samson have had enough games played right now with his record and his stats, he would be a Vezina Trophy candidate. Yeah. So what if he's a Vezina finalist? If he ends up starting 40 to 45 games with his current numbers and maintains those and is a Vezina Trophy finalist, mm. then I have to think he's really creeping up the board in the Calder race. So I don't know. In summary, I think it's not. It's far from over. Far from over. Yes. Uh, let's do a few questions. We have a few different good ones. Uh, the first one is from Jonathan Zygmunt. Love the name. Jonathan Zygmunt. Mm. And Jonathan asks, how many first and second round picks will be moved at the trade deadline? Who will be willing to mortgage the future? I would imagine lots of teams are apprehensive to be trading out of an extremely deep draft. I do think right now that we're going to see fewer first round picks go simply because yeah. for me, it's it's less about the draft class. It's more about the crop of players available at the deadline. And even looking forward to the summer, other than Taylor Hall, it's going to be a weaker and maybe Alex Pietrangelo, we'll see, yeah. but a weaker UFA class. And if you trace that back, it's going to be a weaker trade deadline class, I think, of big names compared to guys like Mark Stone. There's no Mark Stone at this year's trade deadline, mm. barring a trade that we have no idea is coming. So based on that, I think you're going to see fewer high picks go. Doesn't mean that there'll be no first-rounders traded. I think if Chris Kreider's healthy with, with that concussion, I think he'll fetch a first-rounder. I think maybe Pajot could fetch a first-rounder. And if the Devils decide to trade Kyle Palmieri, I think he's worth the first-rounder, Absolutely. If the Blackhawks decide to trade Robin Leonard, pretty unlikely, but if they do, mm. I think that would fetch a first-rounder as well. But it's a small tier. What do you think? It is. And, you know, I looked at sort of first and, and more so even second-round picks. And it's kind of interesting because you look at teams that are in the playoff hunt and, you know, like Colorado and Dallas, neither of them have their second-rounder right now. So you, you say to yourself, well, would they give up a first when they're already missing their second? Probably not. Um, you know, Vegas has two second rounders, so maybe the Golden Knights are a team you look at and say, okay, well, they've got one to spare, so they could do it. Tampa Bay is kind of interesting right now because they have two firsts, but there's a condition on the first uh, that they got from Vancouver in the JT Miller deal where if Vancouver makes the playoffs, then... There's a condition on the pick. So obviously, if you're Tampa Bay, you have to say, okay, well, do we trade our own first rounder for something? Um, and then just sort of hope that Vancouver makes or misses, depending on what they, they want to do, if they want it in 2020 or 2021. Um, but they're not going to know if Vancouver makes the playoffs mm-hmm. before the deadline. So that kind of adds a wrinkle. And Tampa Bay, I mean, they're pretty capped out considering the guys they have to sign this summer. You know, Toronto doesn't have their first rounder. Um, you know, there, there's other teams that have their picks, but they just kind of have their, their own pick. Like the Islanders just have their straight draft class. They don't have any extra picks. Would they be willing to sacrifice their first rounder to pick up something that could maybe put them over the top? I'm not so sure. So, I, you know, I, I agree. I don't think there's going to be a lot of picks moved. I think what we're more likely to see is second rounders and maybe even firsts moved on draft day Mm -hmm. when teams are kind of jockeying for position and they're not necessarily hockey trades but you know that maybe there's a kid that's still on the board at the end of the first and a team wants to jump up and grab him before he goes I I see more of that happening than at the deadline because I I, there's just it seems like there's too many x factors Mm -hmm. 
Next question is from Dave Mercer, and Dave asks, who do you expect to potentially enter into a fire sale and entertain a rebuild? I see a few Western Conference teams at the bottom of the standings with some some assets, possible playoff teams would consider valuable. Uh, it's funny, I was writing about this, our next issue is the trade deadline issue. Uh, there's a big David Pasternak story. <laughs> Not that he's supposed to be traded. Right. There also happens to be a David Pasternak We just story. wanted something he's on the cover. cover. Exactly, so yeah. watch for it. It should be on newsstands any day now. David Pasternak's on the cover. But in that magazine, in that issue, I did talk about how it's crazy how the St. Louis Blues have sort of mucked everything up going forward because they were last place in January. They were talked up as major selling candidates. They ended up not selling, winning the Stanley Cup. We all know the story now. And I think that any team that's within shouting distance of a playoff spot is like, well, I don't know. What if, what if we're the Blues? What right. if should we? So I, I think right now there are fewer teams than ever that are entertaining a fire sale. I do identify a few that are guaranteed sellers. Uh, the Senators, obviously, the Red Wings, if they have anything. When you, poor Red Wings. They're so bad, they almost have nothing to offer. Yeah. Uh, I do think there are a few teams that would be wise to sell because they could have some really useful assets. If the New Jersey Devils decide, which I think, if they go all in on selling, they're going to be sellers, of course, but if they fully commit, like you could dangle Sammy Vatanen and Kyle Palmieri, as I said, mm-hmm. and that would make the Devils one of the better players at the deadline. Uh, I think the Habs, I think if the Habs understand that it's time to pack it in and they're be- understand they're better off being better in a couple years, peaking later, uh, and they put Thomas Tatar on the block, maybe even Jeff Petrie, I right. think they could be major players at the deadline True. and command first-round picks for either of those guys, absolutely. Um, so those are two. So based on the question, if I understand Dave's question correctly, I think Devils and Habs. We did talk about the Sharks, of course, but the Sharks again, their team, their assets are not significant. Uh, you know, Brendan Dillon, sure, but they don't have that really tempting piece yeah. to dangle. One team I'm looking at is Los Angeles, and I mean they've been bad all year, so it's no real surprise. And we've been talking about Tyler Toffoli moving uh, for quite a while now, and he would obviously be a, a good asset, but. Looking a little bit deeper in the lineup, a couple of guys that are eligible for unrestricted free agency this summer, Trevor Lewis and Kyle Clifford. Now, these are not sexy names per se, but if I can channel Ken Campbell all the way from Arizona, Ken always points out that some of the most important deadline acquisitions on Stanley Cup winners have been those more anonymous guys, Michael Hanzoos, Michael Kempney, when he got to Washington, formed that pairing with John Carlson. So, you know, I look at Trevor Lewis as a bottom six guy who can kill penalties, be that, you know, an elevated role player, if you will. Kyle Clifford is another guy where, you know, if you don't have any edge to your team, if you want to get heavier, if you want to be physical, Kyle Clifford is your man. So these are guys that you're probably only going to get, like, maybe a second more likely maybe just a third four uh if you're la but at this point it's like get what you can because you need to just flush out this lineup as much as possible i mean if somehow you can get dustin brown off the books more power to you i just don't know how realistic that is but you need to get faster and you need to get younger so get what you can for those guys and hopefully turn those draft picks into other assets in the future. So, that, I mean, the Kings are a team that I, I think are kind of interesting in that vein. For sure. And I do think Alec Martinez is a big name to watch, too. He's True. got a year left on his deal, but just with his experience, Stanley Cup winning goal, Mr. Overtime in the playoffs. There's your first round. Yeah, and I think I think he's someone who, I don't know, depending on situation, if he's as impactful as teams might think he is. But, you know, he's a good shot blocker. He can probably still play top four minutes. And I think teams might pay a premium because of his winner factor. Yes. I think teams might overpay. So I think, 
yes, you don't have to trade him this year. He's got a year left on his deal, but you could probably get more for him by trading him this year. Kind of like what the Kings did with Jake Muzzin last yeah. year, right? They get they get uh, the first round pick as part of the the, the deal as well. Yeah. So I I do think uh, Martinez next to Tyler Toffoli is the biggest name to watch on that team. The deadline, I, yeah. I think he is going to get traded, but we'll see. Uh, we'll take two more questions here. This one is from Stuart Stuart Stegeman. Stuart Stegeman, great alliterative name. Uh, do the Blues need to go for a top six rental or stay put before the trade deadline? Uh, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, just assessing different teams and their needs leading up to the deadline. To me, the Blues, you know, they've been the best team in the West by a fair margin, I think you could oh, argue. Yeah. And that's with only 10 games from Vladimir Tarasenko. So I think what the Blues do depends entirely on Tarasenko's injury timeline. If they're confident that he's going to be back from his shoulder injury in time for the playoffs, they can treat Tarasenko as their rental, the free rental, right? The late acquisition that's going to change their the outlook of their team. If they don't think he'll be ready, then I do think they could dip into the trade waters. And I know they've been linked to... Uh, Chris Kreider is a name they've been linked to before yeah. already, right? Uh, I don't think they have to go looking, though. They're a very deep team. And with the strides that Robert Thomas has made, centering the third line, I think they're extra dangerous. So to me, yeah, it depends on Tarasenko. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I feel like Tarasenko is your deadline acquisition, even if he's not in the lineup right then and there. Um you know, the Blues system is pretty good right now. You know, Jordan Kiru finding his way. Um, there's some other guys in the AHL that I think have promise. But, I mean, the Blues are so good right now, and they're so deep up front that I think you just you just let it ride. Mm-hmm. Last question is from S3RP, and S3RP starts it with, hey and S3RP asks, how much do you think of team? how much do you think teams' systems have to do, uh, sorry, this this is not me stuttering. This is a lot of words missing from this question. Mm. The actual wording of the question is, how much do you think of team systems do you have to factor in player stats? Okay, so just the, the grammar was missing. Gotcha. Uh, I, I do think that systems have a significant impact on player stats from so many different levels. Whether you're, if you're an aggressive forechecking team, you might rack up a lot more shots, shot attempts. It can affect your possession numbers. I think coaches affect deployment of players, their power play numbers. You could slice it any different direction. And the example that we see most prominently because it's in our own backyard right now is the Leafs and, you know, look at Tyson Berry. Look how different everything's been for him and William Dillander under Sheldon Keefe. They're being deployed differently. They're being mm. used on the power play more. It's different system overall as a team. I, I think it's pretty clear. It's a huge impact. Yeah, and I mean, the first team that comes to mind for me is the New York Islanders under Barry Trotz. You know, you look at Matt Barzell, and when he first came into the league, you saw a guy who had the potential to be like a 90-point guy. Under Trotz, those numbers have come down significantly, but the Islanders have been really good. So I don't think Matt Barzell's complaining at all about whatever his offensive numbers turn out to be because he's going to be making playoff runs consistently. You know, you think about Jordan Eberle, another guy who, you know, in Edmonton, he had some very good years. Doesn't really matter as long as he's part of that collective on Long Island that is winning games. So when you look at, you know, New York, you say like, oh, they don't have any scorers in the top 50 or what it happens to be. But it works for them. So who cares? Fair enough. Well, that finishes up the podcast for this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to John Mulaney for joining us. Celebrity guest John Mulaney, a.k.a. Ryan Kennedy. We'll be back in a week. Thank you, everybody.